Turn with me in your Bibles or in your worship guides to Psalm 63, which is our text this morning. And if you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. This summer we're considering a sermon series on the life of David entitled Searching for a King. And the title is both meant to indicate that Israel was searching for a king that would embody uh, God's rule amongst his people. And it's David's rule that makes us also be reminded that we search for the king and find that right king in King Jesus. Today, as we ponder and consider Psalm 63, we have to wrestle with what happens to us in the midst of suffering and how we respond to suffering. It's our tendency often that when things don't go the way we expect them to or want them to, and I'd really like you to think of suffering in a very broad scheme. It might be suffering and alienation of a relationship. It might be suffering uh, chronic or even terminal illness. It, it might be suffering something at work. Anything that where we feel the pressure of life bearing down on us, what is our response in the midst of that? Do we tend to draw near to God and understand that God is our hope and our salvation in the midst of that suffering, or do we instead tend to pull away from God or blame God or seek salvation or rescue in other things? This is the question before us because this is the situation that lies behind the psalm. It's what David is experiencing. David is going through an immense amount of suffering in the midst or or behind Psalm 63, And it's that which we have to understand to understand what's happening in the psalm. It's attributed to David. It says it's composed when he's in the wilderness. We know of two times that David was in the wilderness, once when he was on the run from Saul, and once when he was on the run from his own son Absalom. And at the end of the psalm, he refers to himself as the king, which wouldn't fit for his time when he was on the run from Saul, because Saul was king. So we know that this psalm is written while he's in the wilderness, fleeing from his own son, Absalom. Well, what is what is that? What is that story? It's one of the sadder stories in the Bible. It's, um, it's a remarkable story. It, it's so long that we really can't do it justice in the city. You may want to may read it this week. I would strongly encourage you to because it's a profound story for many reasons. But we do have to know the basic contour of the story for us to understand and approach and uh, what's going on in Psalm 63. 
And so the story of David and Absalom actually uh, starts with one of David's other sons, a half-brother of Absalom. Remember, David has uh, multiple wives. He has, therefore, many children, and some of them are half-brothers and half-sisters. And Amnon is one of David's sons, and he was terribly attracted to Tamar, who is his half-sister and is Absalom's sister. And that may seem odd to us. We don't typically hear stories or talk about half-brothers and half-sisters being attracted to each other. But this was a different day. And so the Bible says that uh, Amnon was so taken with Tamar that he he actually made himself ill. He was consumed with the notion of being with her. And so he didn't know necessarily how to get close and uh, eventually received some counsel from a clever cousin who said, listen, you need to pretend to be sick and do such and such. And Amnon takes his advice, and he pretends to be very ill, confined to his bed, and he's laying there and suffering, and so his father, King David, comes to visit him. And David's checking in on him, and Amnon says, yes, I'm very ill. And uh, Amnon makes the request that Tamar would be sent to wait upon him, would be his nursemaid in the midst of his illness. David says, okay, orders Tamar to be sent, and Tamar comes to wait upon Amnon. She's there. Amnon sends everyone out from his chambers and asks Tamar to make dinner for him. She does that, or a meal, and and brings it to him. And as she does so, he asks her to come and feed him by hand because he's so ill. As she does so, he grabs her and he violates her. He steals her kisses, which is a very bad thing to do. And uh, interestingly, as soon as he has done this, his love for her turns to hatred. And one of the most telling sentences about idolatry in the Bible, I think, is this. It says in 2 Samuel 13, 15, Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. What a remarkable statement that this thing that had consumed Amnon, whose intent on having, he believed that life would be filled up if he could just have Tamar. He has her, and then he is not filled up. All that desire is still there, and he's nothing but anger and contempt at the dissatisfaction ultimately, and the hatred for himself for engaging something of that nature. It's a picture of all idolatry, really. When we pursue uh, something other than God, or even when we love God for the wrong reasons, eventually we become dissatisfied, and we come to hate that thing, or hate God because we've approached Him in the wrong way, and those everything that we're hoping will be filled up is not. And that love that we had for those things turns to hatred. Well, word soon spread about what Amnon had done. Uh, David was not happy but we're not aware that he took any action against Amnon. Absalom is Tamar's brother, and he is outraged. But he decides to keep things quiet. Tamar, now damaged goods, so to speak, in an Old Testament world, moves in with Absalom in his home. And Absalom proceeds to begin to plot his revenge. Two years go by. At which point Absalom goes to King David and says, hey, I want to throw a sheep-shearing party, which was big party time in the ancient world, lots of feasting, and I want to invite all of your sons, brothers, half-brothers. 
And David says, okay, have a good time. And everyone gathers there, but Absalom has prepared men, and he's told them when Amnon has his fill of wine, kill him. And that's just what happens. Amnon begins drinking and partying, and and the men move and kill Amnon. Now Absalom, right, Tamar's brother, doesn't know how David's going to react. And so he flees out of fear to a foreign city. And he's going to stay there for two years. And uh, the Bible tells us that David is torn up about this entire situation. He didn't actually take action against Amnon, but in 2 Samuel 13.39 it says, "In the spirit of the king, David, longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. And it's in the midst of this grief that Joab, David's general and confidant, approaches him in a kind of a unique and clever way and persuades the king to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king doesn't see him. The king lets Absalom go back to his home, but he's not allowed to come to the palace. And there's no interaction between the two. So, you know, it's hard for us. and We live in a very different world. Our relationships between father and sons is very different. So it's hard. We don't want to project, but you thought your family was dysfunctional, right? Lots of, lots of challenges going on here. And Absalom, even though he's been invited home, there's no interaction between him and his father. Two years go by, so four years have gone by since the actual event between Amnon and Tamar. And uh, Absalom's fit to be tied. He, uh, he sets Joab's fields on fire just to finally get his attention and get him out to speak with him and says, listen, why'd you bring me back? I'm better off in a foreign city. I'm not interested here in staying here in, in, my, own, in my own home and being treated like a foreigner. Get me an audience with the king. And, this, and Absalom says, now therefore let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Absalom says, I'd rather know. Give me before my dad. If he thinks I'm guilty of taking Amnon's life unjustly, then he can put me to death. If not, the situation has to end. And so he has the meeting with the king, of which we are told terribly little. It's one of, one of the many places in the Bible where you would just wish, what happened? What was expressed? You know, it says that, that uh, Absalom prostrates himself before David, says that David kisses him, so there's some degree of reconciliation. But Absalom goes out from that meeting and spends the next two years plotting a rebellion to overthrow his dad. So he's outraged. He's full of contempt. He hates his father. He's not satisfied overall. And he's decided to take the throne for himself. And so two years, he acts incredibly shrewdly. He gathers the support of different members of different tribes and people with resources and eventually draws everyone together in the city of Hebron and says and announces himself king. And then he proceeds to march on Jerusalem. Well, David hears this very late in the game that Absalom and his regiment are marching on Jerusalem, and he says, we've got to run. We've got to flee. We don't have the resources here to meet him. And so David packs up his household quickly, and they flee across the Jordan. And Absalom comes and takes Jerusalem and the palace. It's in this fleeing, this being on the run, in which David uh, writes Psalm 63. It's in the midst of 
<laughs> one of the worst seasons in David's life, that he actually takes time to intentionally worship and to cultivate his heart in proper relationship to God. Right? Do you understand the weight of that? David failed to carry out justice with Amnon after he violated Tamar. He had failed to acknowledge Absalom's concern. He suffered a son full of rage intent on his destruction. Absalom will take the palace. He will violate David's concubines on the roof of the palace that have been left behind. He will start a civil war that will displace David and require the lives of thousands of Israelites to finish. And David, in the midst of this, in the midst of his wilderness experience, is sure to worship. Is that a response that characterizes your wilderness experiences? In the midst of this out-of-control situation, David makes the confession in verse 1 that anchors the entire psalm. Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. What a remarkable statement. Really? God's his God? Doesn't seem to be doing very well for him. And you want to spend time seeking him? Well, it sure seems like he has left the building. The pronouncement is interesting and surprising on another level that that David begins by acknowledging that God is his God. Isn't God the one who gets to choose? He's God after all. Isn't he the one that gets to choose his people and designate them? But here you have David affirming for his own heart that, no, yes, amidst all the options I have to worship, God is my God. And earnestly, I seek him. And it's exactly this kind of relationship that God desires from us and cultivates, desires, He cultivates through His Spirit, but He also desires that we would participate in that very cultivation. We are often tempted to say many other things, are we not? Rather than you, God, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I think there are three basic big lies that occur. One is, I am my own God. Earnestly, I seek myself. The second is, something else is my God. Earnestly, I seek that. Or thirdly, yes, you are my God, God, but on my terms. In other words, we worship an image of God for what we want from Him rather than God as He actually reveals Himself to be. Suffering reveals the lie or lies that we believe in. And we certainly believe in all three of those lies and practice them on a regular basis. Suffering is actually God's gracious provision in certain ways that we would not be allowed to live in the midst of that lie. It's an opportunity to move closer to God or it's an opportunity to move away from God, suffering will always reveal really where our hearts are. We can imagine a few different scenarios. You could imagine a person who perhaps is unemployed or underemployed, and they decide that they will take control of the situation and above the resume, or perhaps they were overlooked for a promotion, and say, well, I'm going to work so outstandingly, I will get this promotion And in the midst of their frustration, in the midst of their suffering, they are incredibly intent to control everything. And so in effect, in the midst of that challenge, they have not really said, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. Instead, it has been an opportunity for them to exert their own power and control 
as if they were God over the situation. Or we might imagine a person who has suffered um, suffered in friendship, perhaps being left out or attacked. Is that an opportunity to say, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, or is it an opportunity to pull away, to cut off, to gossip about those friends, to seek comfort in chocolate or shopping or in work? Or if we might consider a college student, lost in a world of a first deep and significant love and then suffers a breakup, is that opportunity to say, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, or is it opportunity to say, God, I know better than you do and I should be with that person. And because you have not brought this about, I am going to distance myself from you and seek to make things happen in my own way. You see, in each of those three examples, the first person seeks to be their own God. The second person seeks to worship something else to find comfort and salvation in something else. And the third person pulls away from God and is angry at God because they haven't actually worshipped God as God, but as the person who delivers what he or she wants. And this is our constant temptation to be drawn into these lives uh, as a result of the suffering that we experience and here is, you know, one of the wonderful things that we have to wrestle with about the David and Absalom story is this is a different David. Right? If, if you've been around for the series and think back, there was a time when David, because he was afraid of the presence of God, would not allow the Ark of the Covenant to come into Jerusalem. Better to leave it outside and to create distance rather than to engage the suffering that had already been brought about by the Ark. Or the David who decided that His God wasn't God. His God was really Bathsheba. And he fulfilled all of his desires in that. And then after that didn't go as he intended, he decided that his reputation was his God and decided to control that situation and try to keep it quiet. But here we have a David who's absolutely humiliated. He's being thrown out of his own palace by his own son. His family is in disarray. His, His country is in civil war. And he says, he doesn't, he doesn't push God away. He doesn't become angry. He doesn't try to control the situation. He says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. And that, that's the voice of a mature faith. That's the, major, the voice of someone who has learned a great deal in the midst of their suffering. So what does it look like then? saying, oh God, you are my God, I seek you. What does David mean by seeking God? Just look at the verbs of action that lace the psalm throughout. David seeks, thirsts, faints, looks, praises, blesses, worships, remembers, meditates, and clings. Are these the verbs that describe your relationship with God? When someone look at your past week or your past month and say, oh, I see numerous places where this individual, yes, clung and sought and fainted and thirsted for the presence of God and pressed into God even in the midst of their suffering. And I ask that not to be accusatory, but if you don't ask that question, what really is your relationship of God comprised of? If it is not the pursuit of Him, because you really believe He is who He says He is, then it is something that is artificial, it's something that's less, and it's something that you won't know the joy that David speaks of as a result. 
Why would David have so much confidence in God? David reminds himself of the experience of God that he's had in worship in the sanctuary. He says, I've known God. I've known His power and glory. And David is stripped of his power and glory before Absalom. It would be easy for him to say, God, you know, you are not powerful because you've permitted me to be in this terrible place. But instead, he confesses, yes, I'm in a terrible place. It's awful. I'm suffering. God doesn't seem to be doing anything. And yet at the same time, I fully acknowledge the power and glory and sovereignty of God which means that he has permitted me to be in this place. And that in and of itself is a terribly harsh confession, right? That God simply permits our suffering. That in and of itself, that he restrains his power and glory in a way that allows us to suffer, by itself is terribly harsh. But David proceeds immediately from the power and glory of God to what? His steadfast love. And with that, It changes everything. It's difficult to hold these attributes together. Churches that stress God's power and glory are often very harsh places. Churches that stress God's steadfast love are often places without any standards. It's only in holding together God's power and glory on the one hand and God's love on the other hand that we can enjoy the hope of salvation in the proper way. God's power makes him capable, but it's his love that is his motivation. Without his power, he couldn't save you, but without his love, he wouldn't want to. And this is the God that David knows, and because he holds these attributes in right perspective, David can actually speak of enjoyment, of satisfaction in God in the midst of his experience. He offers praise in verse 3, blessing to God in worship with lifted hands in verse 4. David on the run, mocked, in danger, uh, having lost essentially everything, is sure to praise God, which reveals what he actually believes. And he's not disappointed for this effort. And drawing near to the one whose power and glory is perfectly coupled with his steadfast love, David says, You know, it's like sitting down to a succulent meal. Imagine being hungry and then sitting down to the most wonderful of all meals. This is it. Even in the midst of my despair, when I sit down to worship and to participate, to to experience God's divine presence, it is like enjoying a succulent meal. It's the satisfaction he finds even in the midst of his situation. And David knows that it's God who upholds him. He's not so foolish to think that as a result of his attitude or disposition, that's what earns him God's favor. It says God is the one who has upheld him, upheld him with his right hand. And it's David's faithfulness is born out of God's faithfulness over time, that the ark did come to Jerusalem, that God, though punishing him, does restore him after Bathsheba. And in learning these lessons, he comes to trust in the providence of God, to utterly trust, despite All evidence to the contrary, he walks out and praises God and trusts God to bring this to resolution. And in the end, he says, I believe in God's vindication. I believe it will come about. He says in verse 11, But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. What does this actually look like? 
We talk abstractly about being committed to God in the midst of suffering and being faithful in prayer and cultivating your heart in worship. But then what does is, what is a person who's there actually look like? And what are we pursuing when we pursue this? One of, one of my favorite stories within this story, maybe it's my favorite story, is the story of uh, Shimei. Shimei is a man, so you've got to have this picture in your head. David and his family uh, and his, his mighty men, his retinue, are on the run out of the palace and crossing the Jordan. And they come to a, a town, and a man named Shimei is on the hillside by the road, and he starts cursing David and his family, and he starts throwing rocks at everyone in the party. And Shimei says, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. It's hard to imagine what's going through this guy's mind, like why he thinks this is a good idea. Because the Bible says that on the right and left of David are his mighty men. Right, the the toughest of the toughest, right? and of course, as soon as he starts cursing them, one of them turns to David and says, "Essentially, uh, would you like me to remove his head from his shoulders?" Which now imagine, what what do you 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 have a terrible day, a horrible day, and you come home and your child starts criticizing your parenting, right? Well, how's your heart? Right, you know this guy's head is coming off. It can't go any other way. He's crazy, and all, all the men are there to do it. And, but David doesn't do that. And this is what he says. Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. What profound humility. What David essentially says, you know what? Let him alone because maybe his words are true. Maybe there's some guilt in me. Maybe I should have done something about Amnon. Maybe I should have responded differently to Absalom. Maybe I'm responsible for the situation in part. Let him, let him curse. Don't do anything to him. What incredible trust in where the Lord is taking the story. He doesn't know if he's coming back to Jerusalem or not and decides to wait upon the Lord, and so they go. And, of course, David goes on the run. Eventually, there's a battle, civil war. David and his men are victorious, a significant expense, and they finally uh, come back to Jerusalem. And lo and behold, as they're crossing the Jordan, guess who shows up again? Right? This guy's amazing story. Shimei is back. If I was Shimei, I would be several countries over, after David had won, but Shimei said, Let not my Lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. <laughs> really? <laughs> All right. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord the king. Following which, the mighty man again asked, Would you like us to remove his head? And David says, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? 
that you should this day be as an adversary to me. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? You shall not die. In the midst of his suffering, David grew near to God and forgave those who sinned against him. What a remarkable king. Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, drew near to God and forgave those who sinned against him. In the midst of your suffering, if you seek God, then you will know joy and satisfaction. You will know the peace that David hears embodies, and you will know the stark freedom of forgiving those who sin against you. Let's pray. Father, your grace is truly more remarkable than we could ever fathom. And we thank you that we get a glimpse of true and forgiving and loving kingship in David. And we thank you that uh, we get an even better representation of your rule uh, in Jesus. And so we praise you, Lord Jesus. We worship you this day because you are king. And because when the power and glory of the Father is revealed against sin, Uh, You stood in our place because of your steadfast love that we might be redeemed. We give you thanks for this this morning and pray that even in the midst of our suffering, you would equip us by your Spirit to run to you, to earnestly seek you, and to know the joy and satisfaction, not only of meeting you, but then of even becoming more like you. We ask for your grace in this, in Christ's name. Amen.